Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. We're coming to you live from WKLC Studios. I will be filling in for Les Nessman today. All right, well, we're going to continue our discussion of the commandments. Uh, We are looking at commandments 7 through 10 today, and we're going to finish up our discussion of the law. We're talking about the moral law that God gave to his people Israel, that moral law that is binding on all people of all times, of all places. So as we've been looking at the commandments, we've seen that they are indeed much more broad than we initially anticipate. For instance, when we come to the seventh commandment, it says you shall not steal. And at first glance, you'll say, I'm pretty safe there. I haven't got caught for shoplifting or something like that. I guess I've kept that commandment. But as we're going to see, stealing is pretty broad in view of the scriptures. So in the, the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, we read, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. So dealing falsely could be uh, a lot of different things. As a, as a business, obviously, you could charge uh, outrageous prices that you know are, are ridiculous. You could do price gouging or whatever. Stealing in its traditional sense, obviously, just taking something from someone else that doesn't belong to you. Stealing from a store, whatever it might be. I, I don't think I need to define stealing for you, but obviously, that's what that one speaks to. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 22, we read, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. So also for employers, not paying your workers adequately could be a form of stealing. And I'm going to talk more about that in just a minute. St. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So on the positive side, we obviously want to earn our living respectfully, truthfully, honestly, and uh, have a job where we can make money to support ourselves, and so on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, St. Paul says, Love does not envy, it does not insist on its own way. So, you know, this sort of self-centeredness, self-serving idea that is so popular today is certainly against the biblical notion of working for the benefit of others, working for the benefit of our families, and providing honestly for those people that God has entrusted to us. In 1 Peter chapter 4, it says, As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So, stewardship is a pretty broad topic. Uh, Obviously, when we talk about stewardship, uh, we're talking about how do we use the gifts that God has entrusted to us. Uh, A steward is something like a manager, I suppose you could say. Um, And that includes the stewardship of our bodies, the stewardship of of our material wealth that God has blessed us with, as well as the stewardship of the spiritual gifts that God has given us. Here we're focusing on the material blessings that God has bestowed upon us, and it's important to remember that everything we have, we really receive from him. And in our culture, there's this idea that I can be a self-made man. You know, God didn't give me this house. I worked hard. I worked I went through college, I I studied hard, 
I'm the one who did all the work to get a good job that pays good money so that I could have all this stuff. I'm the one who got me this. And you'd have to go back even further and say, well, who gave you the gifts? Who gave you the, the, the academic ability? Who gave you all of those opportunities? Who gave you the opportunity to land this job and so on? So obviously everything we have comes from God and recognizing that leads us to understand that we are really truly just stewards of his gifts that he's first bestowed upon us. So as we talk about the seventh commandment, uh, we see that there's a positive and a negative side to it. On the negative side, we, we learn that we should not acquire our neighbor's property in dishonest ways, such as the obvious ones, robbery, theft, or fraud, or charging exorbitant prices, or excessive interest if you're a business owner, paying unfair wages if you're an employer, cheating our employer if we are an employee, you know, getting paid while we sit there and sleep on the job or something like that, unscrupulous borrowing or idleness, just laziness. I could work, but I just don't want to. I can, I can just collect unemployment or whatever it might be. We should not be envious of our neighbor or be selfish. And again, those are problems of the heart, aren't they? It's, we're not just talking about actions here. We're talking about an attitude something on the inside of us. So on the positive side, we should remember that we are but stewards or managers of all that we call our own, and therefore use whatever has been entrusted us to us to the glory of God, and also for the benefit of our neighbor, and our neighbor being everyone really, but especially those that God has entrusted to us, our families and, and friends and co-workers and all that. Now, in our culture, there's been this influence that kind of leads people to think that it's wrong if a business or a person makes a profit that enriches them more than their employees. So, yeah, you're the boss, you bring in all the money, and, and we get nothing. And uh, this, this viewpoint is really sort of encouraged or shaped by, you know, some uh, communist notions, certainly socialism, which seems to be so in vogue today, uh, which I can't possibly for the life of me understand why, what the uh, draw of that other is, other than just being entitled to free stuff, I suppose. You work hard and therefore I benefit. But there are many who wrongly think that employers and employees should always share equally in all of the profits. However, that's not necessarily true. As, as we think about it, uh, it, it's totally appropriate for an employer who's taking risks, who's investing money, who's, who's purchasing equipment or whatever it might be for their business, that they should also be rewarded with proper gain. They're employing, they're giving you an opportunity to, to have a job. And, and they can have that money to reinvest or to enrich as long as they're not making gain off the backs of poorly compensated employees. You know, they're not running a sweatshop, so to speak who then in turn obviously can't meet their financial needs or responsibilities and support their own families. So they should be paid a fair living wage, but you know we could probably debate about what that is in, in our culture. I just wanted to say one other thing in regard to the seventh commandment. Historically, uh, the church always condemned gambling. And obviously that's not real popular. That notion is not real popular with our culture today. Uh, there's casinos virtually everywhere. You don't have to go to Las Vegas to go to a casino. Uh, 
you know, here in Wisconsin, we've got them all over the place. So what about gambling? Is this wrong? Is it sinful? And as I mentioned, historically, the church tended to, to lean towards that idea that gambling, all gambling, is considered sinful. Uh, but we have to be careful there because, you know, what is it that, about gambling that would be sinful? You know, gambling per se, as we understand it, is not necessarily directly addressed in the scriptures, but there are certainly sins that are commonly associated with gambling which should cause a Christian to examine his motives. So this is something that we want to wrestle with. But I would probably put it in the same category as something like drinking alcohol or smoking. Can we say that they are in and of themselves absolutely sinful? And the answer is no, we can't. We can talk about stewardship of our bodies and is this healthy for us? Is this a good decision? But a moderate or occasional drinking of alcohol is, is certainly not wrong. What's forbidden in the scriptures is obviously drunkenness. In terms of smoking, yes, it's, we know all the health effects that come with it, the negative health effects that come with it. But uh, I don't think everybody out there who lights up a cigarette is going, hey, I'm just trying to you know, destroy myself and destroy my body. Uh, is it a bad habit? Sure, but to, to go you know, and say, well, this is always sinful is not necessarily true. Could somebody smoke recreationally? I, I, I guess that's up for debate. But the, the reality is you know, an occasional cigarette once in you know, a great while, is that going to kill a person? You know, no. If you're doing it all the time, every day, constantly, obviously you're going to shorten your life. So now let's move that over to our discussion about gambling. You know, what is it that motivates us to gamble? Can a group of friends get together around a card table and play poker for pennies or quarters or nickels or something like that? Sure. I mean, and is the motivation there going to be greed? Is somebody hoping to walk away, uh, you know, filthy rich and be able to quit their jobs in that kind of setting? Obviously not. So, it's not that there is by necessity some sort of sinful motive implied with the act of gambling or what we would call gambling, games of chance or whatever. But certainly there, there is that aspect for many people. Some people have a problem or an, addic an addiction to drugs or alcohol. People can also have an addiction to something like gambling. And it's destroyed lives, it's destroyed livelihoods. Uh, it's wrecked people's retirement savings. It's, it's destroyed relationships. So we certainly don't want to just completely ignore it or write a blank check and say this is always acceptable. Uh, I think it's important that we look uh, at our own lives, look at the motivation of our own heart as we, as we contemplate participating in these types of activities. You know, for instance, as somebody thinking, well, if I win the lottery or jackpot, all my problems in life will be finally solved. I can quit my job and I can live the good life. I think that's kind of the, the notion that a lot of people have. I'm going to go to the gas station and if I just win the lottery, I, I can do whatever I want the rest of my life. I never have to worry about money. And obviously there the motivation is not very solid. It's not very good. But if you know some, a person with whom you're gambling against cannot afford to lose because it would adversely affect his or her ability to provide for their family, or if there's an addictive quality to one's participation, obviously placing oneself or others in jeopardy of not being able to provide for themselves or their family 
then one should not in good conscience gamble. And I, I will say that the reason the church has often come down very hard on it is because in the act of gambling, in order for you to win, what has to happen? Somebody else has to lose. Somebody else has to lose. And that person may not be able to afford to lose. I mean, right, wrong, or otherwise, we don't know what their motive is. But uh, the reality is, is for, for some people that are losing their, their money or their livelihood, uh, we, we kind of encourage it by participating with them too. And we kind of depend upon them to lose so that we can win. So again, I think, you know, we have to look at the attitude or the motivation of the heart before we we address these kinds of things. And can it be a sinful act? Sure, it can be. You know, just as being addicted to drugs or alcohol or whatever it might be can certainly be sinful as well. So that's just a little bit on gambling, and I'm sure there's a lot more that we could say on that. But now we come to the Eighth Commandment, and this is one that is probably the most commonly broken in our society, at least one of the, the top two or three, I would guess. It's also one that infects and infiltrates the church and can destroy congregations as well. And the Eighth Commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So, what does that mean? What does it mean to bear false witness against our neighbor? In the book of Proverbs, chapter 19, it says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. So, God does not want us to say anything that is untrue about our neighbor. Untrue or even unkind, I suppose. We'll get to that aspect of it in a little bit. In his letter to the Ephesians, St. Paul writes, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So rather than lie to our neighbor or about our neighbor, we should speak the truth to them and about them as well. Again, from the book of Proverbs chapter 11, it says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. If somebody says, hey, I really need to talk to somebody, but I'm afraid, you know, I don't want to tell my secrets to just anybody, so I'm going to talk to you about it. As long as you promise not to tell anyone, you say, oh yeah, that's fine, I would never do that. And then you turn around and you say, well, maybe if I just told my wife or my spouse, uh, it would be okay. And the next thing you know, that secret that the person has confided in you is all over the place. This is obviously wrong. You're, you're hurting your neighbor's reputation, maybe their livelihood or their means of making a living. Uh, there's all sorts of evil that comes from that. So if somebody trusts us with private information, we should keep that private. James chapter 4 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So we break the Eighth Commandment when we speak evil against one another. And that's not just to each other's face, but it can also be behind their backs. So we think about slander, defaming somebody, saying harsh or untrue words about them behind their back. Why do we do this? Uh, Because we want to hurt their reputation. So the Eighth Commandment really is about protecting one's reputation. And we say, really, in this life, your reputation is almost everything. Your reputation goes before you. 
you know, if you're a hard worker, you're going to get a good job, you're, you're well-liked, and so on and so forth, you're honest, dependable, um, all of those things are part of your reputation. Now, if somebody says something that's contrary to that, and they say, oh, they're really super lazy, and they're a liar, and oh, do you know what they do, and blah, 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 next thing you know, whether it's true or not, in fact, it could very well be false, but it doesn't matter. Your reputation has already been harmed. And that has uh, long-lasting consequences, uh, could be for the rest of your life or for your immediate future, that are detrimental. And so when people say evil things about one another, it, it really is hurtful, and it's intended to be hurtful. We might say, well, I, no, I'm not trying to be hurtful towards them. Yeah, yeah by, by sharing those kind of thoughts or words, it really is like throwing daggers at somebody in a certain sense. You're, you're doing them, uh, in some cases, irreparable harm. And this is the kind of thing that happens even within Christian congregations, and it shouldn't be this way. Uh, but, you know, you'll have somebody, they'll say, oh, you know, that's so-and-so. They think they're so special. And, you know, these little comments here or there uh, that maybe were not intended to be super hateful, but really that's what they end up being. And they they destroy unity, they destroy relationships, they they knock try to knock other people down. So words can be weaponized, so to speak, but they can also be used to build one another up. In the book of Zechariah, it says, do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And again, in Proverbs 31, it says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So we've seen the negative side, the things that we shouldn't do, but here we see that we can also use our words to build one another up, to edify to strengthen one another, and to defend one another. And that's the positive side of the Eighth Commandment. And even if we say, well, I don't tend to say negative things about people, if we fail to do the other side, that is to build other people up and paint them in the best light or put the best construction on them, we can be just as guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment as well. As St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, we are to speak the truth in love. So we speak the truth, but we speak it in love. So again, as we look at the negative sides and the positive sides of this commandment, we see that we should not say anything that is untrue or unkind about our neighbor. We should not lie about him or her or to them. We should not withhold the truth from them in order to harm them. We should not deceitfully reveal their secrets or abuse their confidence that they've placed in us. We should not speak evil of them to injure or to destroy their reputation. And we should even go one step further, and we shouldn't even think evil against them, even the thought. Remember, sin always starts in the heart. Before it even gives birth to outward actions, the thought is already there in the head. It's already there in the heart. On the positive side, we should defend our neighbor against false accusations as much as is possible. We should speak well of them. Uh, we should cover up their faults and explain in their favor whatever can be so explained. It doesn't mean we should lie about them, but we can certainly not participate in the slander and gossip and so on. So gossip and slander is big business in our world. There's whole TV channels, there's whole magazines 
based on this whole idea of, you know, talking about other people's dirty laundry, so to speak. Now we come to the ninth and the tenth commandments, and we're going to kind of lump them together. And the reason being is they both deal with the problem of coveting. So we'll talk about what that means. But first of all, the ninth and tenth commandments say, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his cattle, nor anything that is his. So what is all this coveting business about? In the book of James, chapter 1, it says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We see the, the train of consequences, so to speak. Uh, as we mentioned just prior to this, that sin is conceived in the heart, in the mind, then it gives birth to outward actions, which, you know, are obviously sinful, and the thoughts are sinful, and the desires are sinful. All of these things lead to destruction. They lead to death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, St. Paul says, If we have food and clothing, with, this, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the flip side of covetousness is being content with what we have. Now, we haven't really defined what coveting is, and coveting is wanting or desiring what belongs to someone else. So as you can imagine, it's not just, hey, I want a car like that person has. It's, I want their car, or I want their house, or I want their spouse, or I want their job, or whatever it might be. And that sinful desire, uh, you could call it jealousy, you could call it uh, greed, you could call it all sorts of different things, can also lead to a whole host of sins. Maybe it leads a person to steal or to adultery or to any other number of other sins. So what's unique about the eight, the ninth and 10th commandment is they are commandments that do deal exclusively with the heart. We're not talking about outward actions even at this point. We're talking about the desire of the heart, the covetous desire of the heart. The book of Hebrews in chapter 13 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The psalmist writes, Psalm 37, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So, on the positive side and the negative side, first the negative side, we, we learn that we should not have any evil desires in our hearts or seek to get someone else's property by trickery or by a show of right. That is ways that are legal yet loveless. And I, you know, I, I'm yet to have a, a great example of this, but I would say if your neighbor needs uh, you know, $15 more to, to make their house payment or something, and if they don't make it, they're gonna, they're gonna go into foreclosure and they're gonna lose their house or whatever, and you know you could help them out, obviously it would be more than $15, but um, 
and yet you don't because you want that house and you realize here's your opportunity. I could get this thing and it would be totally legal. I mean, I'm not doing anything wrong by the law. Uh, you know, he can't pay it. That's, that's his problem. That's not my problem. And, but you really want it. Obviously, that would be a show of right. It would be legal, but yet it would really be loveless. The motivation is just as greedy there. In God's sight, every evil desire is sin. So this is something that we've been emphasizing throughout all of the commandments that, you know, you might think, oh, I've kept this one outwardly. And yet, when we look at our hearts, the condition of our hearts, we have to confess that we've broken all of the commandments, all of them. So on the positive side of the ninth and 10th commandment, we learn that we should be content with the such things as God gives us. We should find our happiness first and foremost in him. And we should also help our neighbor to keep what belongs to them, if we can somehow do that. So that's kind of a brief overview of the Ten Commandments. We've gone through all of them one by one over the last couple episodes. And uh, now we want to kind of summarize this and tie it all together. You know, what was the point of this exercise in going through the commandments and, and really uh, looking at them and probing them? We've been talking about the moral law, the Ten Commandments. So how much does God require of us in those Ten Commandments? And here's the way Jesus in the New Testament summarized those Ten Commandments. Jesus said, You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard of the law is complete perfection. It doesn't say, Do your best and God will do the rest. It says, Be perfect. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I, I've never met a perfect person. I, I think, you know, well, it's fact. Everybody has broken these commandments, and not just one, but many of them, and not just once or twice, but many, many times over. So none of us meet that standard. If Jesus says, be perfect, as your heavenly Father's perfect, it doesn't say, you know, as long as you're better than you used to be or you're trying real hard, God will reward you. It says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the book of James adds to that in chapter 2, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So if I were to say, well, I've never broken the law, I'm not a criminal, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not, I haven't done anything wrong. And you say, well, what about that time that you got three speeding tickets? You say, well, yeah, but, you know, uh, that, that was a long time ago. But according to the law, you broke the law. You have a record. You know, you have a criminal record, so to speak. So it's the same thing with God's law. You might say, well, I, boy, I haven't broken that one in a long time. Or I've never broken that one. The, the reality is even if you just broke one, you would be a lawbreaker because the standard is all or nothing. It's complete perfection. And none of us have lived up to that standard. So God wants us to keep all of his commandments perfectly in our thoughts, in our desires, in our words, and our actions. Now, what does God threaten to do to those who don't keep that law, to those who sin against him? St. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. It is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
So you and I are cursed. I don't like the sounds of that. Doesn't sound uh, very promising. It doesn't sound friendly. I mean, it sounds, this sounds bad. This sounds like we're in, in a bad position. And that's true because sin is serious. It's not, oops, I messed up. These are actions which condemn us before our Heavenly Father, before our Creator God, who created us to live in fellowship with Him, in communion with Him, in perfect holiness and righteousness, and we have not done that. Uh, sin has separated us from our Creator, and we love sin. We, sin. we serve sin. Anybody who says they don't is lying. The wages of sin is death, St. Paul writes. Physical death came into this world because of sin. Spiritual death came in right away because of sin. We've talked about that. But worst of all, eternal death, eternal separation from God. Death is not natural. It's not part of what God intended for this creation. Death is a consequence of sin. And so also those things that go along with death, disease, decay of our bodies, and so on, all of those are a result of sin entering our world. Now, can anybody keep God's law perfectly? And hopefully this is a self-evident answer. I mean, we've been saying the same thing over and over and over, but I've heard people say, well, yeah, I, I don't sin anymore. I, I'm, I'm keeping the law perfectly. And you say, well, have you looked at it? Have you, have you read it? Because uh, I don't think you are. Yeah, probably not. No. Can anyone keep God's commandments perfectly? Psalm 14 says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Oh, come on. I know a lot of really good people. We, we use that term pretty loosely in our, in our culture, in our society. In God's sight, though, God says, there's not even one. There's not one who does good. Not a single one. Because even if we've sinned once, we are lawbreakers. We are rebels who have rebelled against him. And we bring upon ourselves the curse of the law, which is death. Isaiah chapter 64 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the things that we do that we want to you know, pat ourselves on the back for, Oh, look at all these good things I did for my community. If that was our motivation, it's sinful. I, I, wanna, I want people to see how good I am. I want recognition. I, want, uh, I'm, I do this because it, it makes me feel good about myself. That's not the right motivation. You, you do it out of love for a neighbor, purely, or in service to God, purely. All of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. We have all become like one who is unclean. St. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is the description of the war that's going on within all of us as believers in Christ. On the one hand, we are new creations in Christ, uh, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And on the other hand, we have this sinful nature that wants to drag us in the other direction. Yeah, I know I should go to church. It's the right thing to do. 
but I'd rather stay home and watch this football game, or I'm just too tired. God knows I need my sleep. There's this tug of war going on, and very often we have to confess that it's that sinful nature that wins rather than the new man in us. You know, and if this is what's going on in Christians, think about it for unbelievers. There's no struggle. I can just serve my sins and do whatever makes me happy and whatever gives me pleasure, and I don't even have to feel guilty about it. But the point here is that even in believers, uh, you know, we sin daily, we sin much. If you think that somehow you stopped sinning after you became a Christian, well, then you don't look at yourself rightfully. St. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Psalm 143 says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. No one living is righteous before you. And I'll say it again. No one living is righteous before you. That is, on their own. So, I don't care how good a person you think that person over there is, they are not righteous before God in and of themselves. Something else has to happen. Since the fall into sin, nobody has kept the law and no one can keep the law of God perfectly, as he says we should. And even Christians keep it only imperfectly. And this is always, I think, a surprise to people. They walk into a church and they say, well, I don't want to go to that church. It's all just a bunch of sinners and hypocrites. Yeah? What were you expecting? If you think somehow that's not the case and that you're not one of them, uh, then you don't really know yourself very well. You don't see yourself truthfully, according to God's word. Can anyone be saved by keeping the commandments? And the answer is no. Galatians 3.11, no one is justified before God by the law. And one of the most powerful apologetics, defenses of the Christian faith, is when we look at it and compare it to all the other world religions, virtually every world religion teaches that you get to the afterlife, whatever that might be called in that religion, by the things you do. They are all religions of the law in some way, shape, or form. And even within Christianity, there are so many churches that teach that it's at least in part what you do that gets you to heaven. You have to say a sinner's prayer, you have to give your heart to Jesus, you have to have some sort of conversion experience, you have to speak in tongues, whatever it might be. On the one hand, they say, oh, we're saved by grace. On the other hand, they're saying, well, but you have to do something. And that is mixing the law with the gospel. And that's always dangerous. It's always damning. No one gets to heaven by means of the law. The Bible is crystal clear on this statement. That being the case, we might ask, well, why did we just go through all of this then? What's the point of this? Maybe we should just ignore it all. I mean, it doesn't seem like it really has any impact. It doesn't have a purpose for me then, right? Wrong. What purpose does the law serve if people can't be saved by it? St. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. Are we the lawless and the disobedient? Yes, we are. For the ungodly and sinners. Are we the ungodly and sinners? Yep. 
for the unholy and the profane. Is that us? Yes, it is. For those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers. So the point is, is the law was given for sinners. You say, well, why? Why would, why would the law be given for sinners? Romans chapter 3, St. Paul says, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is really the primary use of the law. We call it, like, it's like a mirror, right? I mean, when you look in the mirror in the morning, do you see the most beautiful face you've ever seen in the world? Or do you see a person with disheveled hair and blemishes and wrinkled skin or whatever it might be? That's what we see in the mirror. We see all of our defects. We see the things we don't like about ourselves. And that's what the law does for us. It shows us, hey, we need help. We're sinners. The other way I would describe it is it's kind of like an x-ray. You know, when you go to the doctors and you say, I got something going on with my arm or leg, and they say, well, we need to do an x-ray. And sure enough, they hold it up to that light, and what do they see? Oh, you can see right there. It's broken. You have a broken bone. That's what the law does for us. It's like an x-ray. It cuts through all the externals and it shows us the problem on the inside. It's like an x-ray for our heart, if you will. It shows us that the heart is putrid. It's rotten. It's dying. We need help. We need a savior. So through the law comes knowledge of sin, St. Paul says. Romans chapter 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So again, the law shows us the sin that lives in our hearts. Now, in the first use of the law that we didn't really talk too much about, we say that in a general sense, the law is a curb. If you think about what is the purpose of a curb on a road? Keep you in the middle. Yeah, it keeps you from going off the, the rails, so to speak. Uh, maybe maybe the, uh, the, the walls on a bridge might be a better illustration. You know, what's the walls on the bridge for? Well, to keep you from driving into the river. I mean, it's there to just sort of, it's like, you know, bumper, uh, bumper bowling, you know, keeps the ball in the center. Or, or keep you from running off the cliff or right. whatever. Um, you know what bumper bowling is, right? Yeah. Uh, that's the kind of bowling I'm good at. I, I, I never get a gutter ball when I gutter yeah, ball. Yeah, I tend to hit the, the pins that way. So, you know, in a general sense, the law as a curb is kind of like those, those rails or those uh, walls on a bridge or the, the bumpers in the bowling, the gutters. Yeah, I guess that's how you'd say it. it. It keeps people from completely anarchy, you know. So it keeps people from just going around and killing one another and stealing constantly and doing all the, the things that the commandments say we shouldn't do. In general, we say people around the world agree that these things are wrong. Why? Because of their conscience, which we talked about in an earlier episode, uh, the law that was written on man's heart at creation, the conscience is sort of a remnant of that. And in this way, the law serves as a curb. It keeps gross outbreaks of sin from occurring in the world. Now, it's not perfect. Obviously, people still do horrible things. They can sever their conscience. They don't listen to conscience. It can be not very acute and all those kind of things. But so we've talked about a curb use of the law and a mirror use of the law. Now, these are not ours to play around with. These are the way that God uses his law in our world. So he can use it in a general sense to curb gross outbreaks of sin. He can use it most importantly, most specifically, to show us our sin. 
as a mirror. And then in a third way, there's, a, there's an aspect of the law that only applies to believers, and that's this. Remember when you used to have GPSs in your car? N- now we just have, or you used to carry a map. Maybe that's bad. <laughs> Remember back in the, the you know, <laughs> medieval times when we used to you have maps in our car and try to figure them out to get places, or we'd have to read road signs. I mean... Remember like those things? Paper maps? Yeah, paper maps. Wow. And now we just have a phone that does all of those things. But but it wasn't that long ago, I don't think I'm that old, that uh, you, know, you used to be able to buy a Garmin or something, you'd stick it to your windshield, and it would give you uh, directions. You know, turn here. Like I said, now our phones do all of that. But that was a big, big deal when those came out. You know, in a certain sense, that's kind of what the law does for Christians. As Christians, we are a new creation in Christ. We have new desires, new impulses. We want to serve God. We want to do what's pleasing to God. And the law tells us what that God-pleasing behavior is and what it looks like. It doesn't give us the power to do it. It doesn't motivate us or empower us to, to serve God in those ways. Only the gospel does that. But it certainly is like that map. It says, oh, you want to get from point A to point B? Here's, here's the road you take. You want to serve God? Here's what God desires. And that's so we say in that sense, the law serves as a guide uh, in the sense that it shows Christians how to lead a God-pleasing life. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Now, we've come to some startling realizations that the law condemns everybody who does not keep it perfectly, and none of us have kept it perfectly. Therefore, we deserve God's eternal wrath and punishment. So where does that leave us? In our world, if you were to ask people, you know, why do you think you're going to go to heaven or do you think you should go to heaven? A a lot of people, even some who profess to be Christians would say, yeah, I, you know, I try to be a good person. I try to live by the golden rule. I try to treat others as I would want to be treated. I try to live according to the commandments. There's people who say, oh, the commandments need to be outside of courtrooms. They need to be in our schools and all this stuff as if the commandments teach you the way to heaven. They don't. They teach you that you're a sinner who needs a Savior, so they're certainly important. They teach us what God-pleasing behavior looks like, so they're certainly important. But they're not, it was not given for that purpose. So that leaves us with the question, where then can we find salvation from sin? If the law reveals us that we're sinners and that we're doomed to destruction, eternal destruction and separation from God, what hope do we have? St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You can't combine the two. You can't say, well, because I've tried to be a good person, God will save me. The Bible does not say God helps those who help themselves. In fact, it's not in there. Uh, wait, wait, I guess it could actually be in the book of First Concoctions chapter 3. I like that chapter. Yeah, a lot of people do. Romans chapter 10 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He's the only one who has fulfilled every aspect of the law. He's loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's loved his neighbor as himself. He's kept all of those commandments perfectly. Why? So that he can clothe you with his robe of perfect righteousness. We call that his active obedience. All that he did 
in our place to fulfill all righteousness. But that's not all he did. He also paid the penalty that we had incurred. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Remember how we said the law brings its curse upon us. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. But here we hear the good news, the gospel, that Christ has redeemed us. He's purchased us. He's bought us. He's, he's rescued us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us in our place. He died for our sins. So not only is he able to provide us with a perfect righteousness, but he cancels our debt. He cancels that sin. He takes it away. He removes it from us. He, he carries it himself to the cross, and he pays for it in full, crying out, it is finished. So we find salvation only in the gospel. The gospel is that good news which tells us that Christ is our substitute, that he fulfilled the law for us by living a holy life in our place, and that he suffered and died for us. So hopefully this has been a beneficial discussion for you as we've explored the Ten Commandments, but most importantly, we've seen where they lead us, and hopefully where they lead you as well, to confess that we are poor, wretched sinners in need of God's mercy and grace, and that drives us to the foot of the cross where we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of and perfecter of our faith, the one who bore our sins in his body on that tree. Thank you for joining Under the Oaks. This is Pastor Trent Sari. And I'm Lauren Thompson. We'll see you next time. See you later.